Now, one of the special delights of ordination services is that you get to hear two sermons, uh, one from me this evening and one from my colleague and brother in uh, ministry. Uh, I'll be giving the charge to the deacons, the new deacons, and Kyle will be charging the congregation in a moment. If you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God uh, to the book of Colossians, another one of Paul's prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, the, the four epistles he wrote during his house arrest in, in Rome. And the whole book of Colossians essentially revolves around the subject, can people change? Uh, at times you might despair of that. I, I at times despair of that. Um, not because of you, because of me. I look at myself and old habits and old struggles and old just constitutional weakness, the way God has made me and the way fall, the fall has corrupted me. And I wonder at times, can I change? At times it feels like I'm making two steps forward and three steps back. And the book of Colossians essentially uh, deals with the, the true and certain hope that Christians, even the worst of us, and certainly the best of us, we can change. And that change, Paul says, comes through God the Father. It can only come through and from God the Father. He is the one, Paul begins the letter thanking for their salvation. We thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of the saints, right? So, he thanks God for them, and he, he thanks God, too, for equipping them um, and prays that God would fill them and enable them to live lives that are fully uh, pleasing to Him, to be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And he also believes that faith comes or change comes not just from God the Father, but it comes through God the Son. He speaks about Jesus, this great image of the invisible God, the firstborn above all creation. By Him all things were created, whether things in heaven, things on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things come into being through Him, Paul says, and all things exist for Him. He is before Him all things, and all things in Him hold together, and He is the one who is reconciling everything in heaven and on earth um, to God the Father in a great act of redemption. And change comes, Paul says, as Jesus is preached. He says at the end of chapter 1, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. The change comes from God the Father and through God the Son as God is preached. God the Son is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 2, Paul says that change never comes through false religion. It's one of the great lies. He says at the end, chapter 2, these false religions, these, these man-made rules have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These false religions, he said, these Jewish pagan amalgamations that were present in Colossae and theologians debate about exactly what was going on in these, 
in this false religion, but it's an amalgamation of Jewishness, Greek proto-Nothicism, all these different things, these, these strict laws, do not touch, do not taste, and so forth and so on, all blending together. But Paul says these false religions, they come from men, they lead away from Christ, and they make no difference whatsoever to the soul. And in chapter 3, where we are this evening, Paul outlines how this change that comes from God the Father through God the Son preached in the church changes the way you think about everything, and it changes the way you live in the church. It changes the way you live in your home. It changes the way you live with outsiders. It changes the way you live with everyone. And that's the message in the past, in the last three chapters here. And I want to jump right in, in verse 9. This is the Word of God. Before we read, let's pray together. Lord, our God and our Father, come this evening in this brief exhortation, we pray, and speak, Lord, to Your servants gathered here that Your Word would bear forth fruit and that we would grow in grace and knowledge and that You would fill especially our new deacons, O Lord, with the rule of the peace of Christ and the, the guidance of the Word of Christ, that they would have all of the resources they need to bear with Your people and to serve and supply their needs according to their ability and Your help and strength. For Jesus' sake, amen. This is God's Word. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Amen. Well, it has been said that being a pediatrician would be great were it not for the parents. It would be even better were it not for the children as well. There also can be difficult. Um, but there you have it. Well, let me let you into a secret, men, as deacons, new deacons in the church. Being a deacon would be great uh, were it not for the Christians in the church. And it'd be even better were it not for the pastor. Well, I would say pastors, but Kai's pretty good. But uh, we, we, can, we can complicate your lives and stress you out more than you could possibly imagine. And as you begin this work of diaconal ministry in the church, you need to know, of course, that you are a sinner in need of change, and you're ministering amongst a people in need of change. 
that the best of us are a work in progress, and there's much in our hearts and lives, in your heart and life, that can provoke you and one another to anger. It's a difficult job. Paul has to bear, has to encourage the church in Colossae and the church in Ephesus to bear with one another, and we have to bear with one another because we can be bears with sore heads, and there's much bearing with uh, to be done, right? And it's difficult. It's one of the reasons why the average length of stay of a pastorate in America is four years. It takes about four years for you all to realize where he stinks and for he, him, to realize where y'all stink and uh, get to a place after about the fourth year where there's a lot of stink everywhere. And it can be uh, difficult, shall we say. And as Paul looks out at the church in Colossae, he sees that there's just so much reason for despair, right? Listen to the list of the congregation at Colossae. Here there is Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free. Just listen to that list. It, it just it emphasizes how impossible congregational unity and peace is in Colossae. You've got Greeks, the haughty-taughty, high-brow uh, readers, the erudite speakers. These are the high-culture, um, educated um, brainiacs, the nerdy ones, right? And then you've got the Jews. Um, they're the nitpicky uptight ones with all the rights, rules, and rubrics. They are the king and queen of thou shalt not, and above all, thou shalt not eat dirty food, and thou shalt not touch dirty people. And there are stacks of those in the congregation in Colossae. So the Jews are kind of the uptight ones. And then you've got the barbarians. The barbarians were, well, barbarians. Uh, the term barbarian comes from the word barbar, uh, and it was a, a mocking term uh, for these yokels who couldn't speak very well, and so people would go the ba 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 kind of thing. Um, it's where the Beach Boys got their inspiration, I think. Um, but um, these men and women were unclean, uncouth, and unsmelly. And then you have the Scythians, and the Scythians, as bad as the barbarians were, the Scythians were even worse. And they were completely uncultured and illiterate. They couldn't read or write, and they were famous for their savage way of fighting. War was their chief business, and they would tear the scalps off their enemies with their fingernails, which I presume are rather long. They had the most filthy habits, one author said. They never washed in water, and they drank the blood of the first enemy killed in battle. And they made napkins of the scalps and drinking bowls of the skulls of the slain. So you can imagine a Jew going round for afternoon tea to a Scythian house, and they serve you your tea in a skull. And you go, thanks, uh, I can't touch that, much less drink from it, thank you, run, run away, you dirty little man, and uh, you have the problem. And so that's the, that is the, the problem at um, the church in Colossae. And so there's much reason here for division and uh, difficulty. And Paul brings the gospel to bear um, upon the congregation. And using his words, I want to bring the gospel to bear, especially upon you new deacons, but really all of you as well. 
how can these people live together? How can you serve such difficult and, frankly, at times obnoxious people? First of all, Paul says, remember who these people are. Remember who these people are. Verse 9. Sorry, verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. Here there is only Christ. Christ is all, and Christ in all. And as I look out at our congregation, one of the most delightful things, though I'm thankful there's no Scythians here, um, but one of the most delightful things is you're all very different, right? There's, 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 there's every type of person, conviction. Um, we're all here, right? And we're different. None of us would naturally be friends with all of us here in this room. And what Paul says to Colossae is, is true for them, and it's true for you. The, the superficial things that differentiate us fall into infinitesimal nothingness when compared to the great one who unites us, and that is Christ. And we can only find ourselves being frustrated with members of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ if we forget that we are not marked out by who we are in our differences. We're marked out by who we are in Christ. Christ is all, and Christ is in all. And it becomes so much easier to love difficult people like me and others in the church whenever we see not me and not you, but we see Christ in me and Christ in you, and only Christ in me and only Christ in you. So, as Jesus says, inasmuch as you do it unto the least of one of these, my little ones, you do it unto me. As Mark Twain said, clothes maketh the man, because naked people have very little influence in society. And don't look at one another as naked human beings see yourselves clothed in Jesus Christ. That's how God sees you, and that's how we must see one another. And when we do, we become lovely because of who we are in Christ. First of all, then, remember who you are. And you can only… you, you will only find frustration and anger rising up in your heart if you forget that. And then, remember who they are, remember also who you are. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, and so forth. Back to that again in a second. But Paul says three things. Remember who you are. The people you're called to serve, Glenn and Jacob and David, the people you're called to serve were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Before there was time and space and matter, God set His love on these people. And they're lovely because He loved them, because He chose them. Chosen by God, set apart for God. 
put, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy. That God has taken these people and has set them apart. We think of the throne or the, cro- or the crown um, jewels of England set apart, these pieces of rock dug up from some mine somewhere, but they're, they're special because they're set apart for that holy moment when the queen was crowned. I can't bear to think of of Charles becoming the king just yet, so we're thinking about Elizabeth when she was crowned, and they're lovely because those those jewels aren't just valuable. They were set apart for her and her royal crown, and we are set apart as God's jewels, holy for Him and special to Him, and also because He loves us. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. that when the angels look at you, each one of you here, they see men and women and boys and girls who are beloved by God. Not just that the gospel is not that God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. The gospel is that God loved you at the cost of His own Son. And we need to to see that as we look at one another, as people call us, people impose upon us, people uh, treat us as servants, which is always a difficult thing to be. It's okay to be a servant. When someone treats you as a servant, <laughs> it's entirely different. And, um, and we need to remember these are, people that, these, these are people that if we saw them now as we will see them then when Christ comes and they're transformed into His likeness, and have His style and His glory, we would scream just like that. And we would fall down on our faces and be tempted to worship them because they'd be the nearest thing to God we'd ever seen. Remember who these people are there in Christ. Remember who you all are, chosen by God, set apart for God, and beloved of God. And then remember what you can do This is an astounding word from the Apostle Paul. Now, because of Christ, because of the gospel of Christ and the power of Christ living in you, you 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 have power over your own hearts. Without Christ, you could do nothing. But with Christ, you can do all things. And that's got much more to do with the verses here before us than kicking a pigskin down a football pitch. With Christ, Paul says, you can put on hearts of compassion. You no longer need to be controlled by restless, hateful passions. Frustration needs no longer to be your ruling emotion when you meet difficult people who add to your stress rather than reduce it. You can deal with them with compassion. The word in in English, compassus, means to suffer with. And it carries the idea, it's, it's, that, it's that human or even most godlike of, of emotions that when we look at somebody in pain, we are incapable of feeling nothing when our hearts are on straight. When I see you in pain, um, my heart should be moved also. Whenever I was a little lad back in Northern Ireland, I was playing with a wee girl up the road, and I was probably, I don't know, four or five, maybe a bit older, six, I don't know. But she was 
three or four, and she was cycling on a, on a, on a, a tricycle, and she fell over. I, didn't, I was a, a distance away from her, and as she fell over, she cut her knee and began crying. And I went, like this. But her dad looked out the window and thought I was laughing, and he came out and <laughs> clobbered me around the ear, and then I ran home to my dad, and dad went up and had, had a word with him. It never happened again. But, but you know, I wasn't laughing. I was moved even as a six-year-old boy. I saw her pain, the, the blood on her knee, and... Um, the tears running down her face, and I went, that's compassion. And the gospel does that to us. It, it's, it makes us more, not less, sensitive to the pains of those around us because it's connected us, reconnected us to God. Who is God? Second Corinthians 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father literally of compassions. It's the same word, He's the Father of compassion. So all that's, all, of, all that's true sensitivity to people in pain comes from God. And deacons, you'll do your service well as you put on a heart of compassion. Don't, don't, let, don't let pain in other people's lives and stress in your own life desensitize you to pain in other people's lives. Put on a heart of compassion in Christ you can, be, you can do that. You can change the way your heart feels when it deals with difficult people. You can put on a heart of kindness. And the word kindness, it describes the whole purpose of God's salvation. That God, Paul says, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and by grace raised us up and put us in the heavenly places, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness, as the angels see us lifted from hell, deservedness, to the throne of God with Christ. And the angels just gasp as they see the kindness of God. And that's, that's the kind of heart we're to put on as we do our ministry. Compassion, kindness, humility, a true sense of who we are before God, God's greatness above us, God's kindness to us, that we're nothing, He saved us, and now we're sons of God. And a, a man who thinks like that, it, it is the, the answer to pride that springs eternal in the fallen human heart, mine most of all. Meekness, put in hearts of kindness, compassion, humility, meekness. The word meekness is, is um, bearing wrong without feeling the need to get even, not being overly impressed with your own importance having the strength to keep your temper. And we can do that. We don't have to be ruled by our temper because of the gospel and Christ in us and hearts of patience. We can suffer without snapping. And so because of who we are in Christ, we can bear with one another, Paul says. And if we have a complaint against another, we can forgive one another. As the Lord has forgiven us, so you also must forgive and above all these things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so Paul says as we move on, and I'm ending here, he's given you the two, um, two resources to lean upon as you do this work of ministry. The rule of Christ's peace, the rule of Christ and the Word of Christ. And let the peace of Christ, verse 15, rule in your hearts, Whenever you feel frustrated towards other members of the church, you let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. You don't think about how much they've annoyed you, how much they've belittled you, how much they've abused you. 
you think about Jesus has made peace with them, and how can I make war with them? I wish I remembered that more than I do. And the Word of Christ. Let the Word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing this great guiding Word that leads us to praise with psalms and spiritual songs and leads us to gratitude. It's always a It's always a measure. Where's your joy is a great question. Where's your gratitude? As the Word of God dwells in your heart richly, gratitude will bubble up, and in everything you do, you'll be giving thanks to God, amazed that while I deserve to be an orphan child of hell, I'm a well-beloved child of heaven, and how vast the difference between what I deserve and what I receive. So remember these things, men, as you begin your service, as I try to remind myself too, who we are in Christ. Christ is the great, the great glue in this congregation, and His love for us, His choice of us, and His setting apart of us, and His enabling us no longer to be governed by our hearts, but to rule our hearts with gospel emotions as we lean in and serve in the church until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. Thank you. Well, I have the privilege of charging the congregation, which uh, ironically, I did the exact same thing last Sunday evening at a different church as we installed a new minister and associate pastor in our denomination in our presbytery. Uh, And this evening, however, it's a little different because this is the church at which I serve, and so I know you all very well. And my relationship with the three men we've installed as deacons this evening is much more significant than uh, other relationships I have. Just as a a moment of personal privilege here, I want to share briefly the joy that I have in in seeing these three men ordained and installed as deacons here at Christ Covenant Church. Uh, Friday before last, on February 23rd, one of my dearest friends, a a man uh, about a year younger than I, a pastor back in Montana, uh, dropped dead of a heart attack. Um, And he was just a a sweet, sweet man, loved the Lord, loved his wife and children and the church that he served at. And I was able to listen to his funeral service yesterday online, and a mutual friend was commenting on Danny's character. And he shared an anecdote about something that Danny was prone to do. And as I thought about that this evening and thinking about Glenn and David and Jake, I realized that I would be unsurprised to discover the same thing to be true of either of these three men. And Tim, in speaking of Danny, said when Danny would go to the gym, there was a a small gym in Bozeman that he was a member of, he would go up to the gal at the counter Every time he would show up, he would get changed into his workout gear, and he would say, hey, is there anybody new here today, new members? And she would say, if there was, yeah, we've got somebody joining or someone visiting the gym. He goes, put them by me so I can welcome them and make them feel comfortable here. He was described as being full of joy and compassion, earnestness and warmth, and those are the terms that I think of when I think of Jacob and Glenn and David Holly. 
And so I'm so overjoyed to be able to charge you, our congregation here, as we welcome them to service and office here in the church, how we should respond to their leadership and their execution of the role to which they've been called. Now, it's almost uncontested in history, in theological history, that Acts chapter 6 is the uh, inception of the diaconate. And I want to read a couple of verses and then just make a few comments to you, our congregation, concerning the relationship that these early deacons had with their church in Jerusalem. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we ourselves, excuse me, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I think there's three things that we see in this text that are particularly significant for us as a congregation as we welcome uh, Glenn and David and Jacob to the diaconate. Number one, there's an acknowledgement that the body of Christ has real material needs, doesn't it? Uh, There was a dispute that arose because some of the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The implication there is that the church was busy on a daily basis caring for those among themselves who were in need. We read this back in chapter 4. They had all things in common, were distributing their goods to one another so that way no one was in need. And we read it all the way back in chapter 2, at the very beginning of the church's New Testament life, when Peter preaches his sermon, it tells us that they gathered together and broke bread and prayed together in homes, and they had favor with all the people because they were sharing their goods among themselves to ensure that no one was in need. But the reality is that the body of Christ has needs. You are embodied souls. You are real people with physical selves, with houses, with needs, with material, financial, and so forth needs. Do you know what those are in your own life? And do you realize that in some measure our deacons exist to minister to those needs for you? It's what they delight to do, to serve you according to your physical needs. The office of the deacon is one of mercy. It's one of the ways that Christ expresses his kingship over the church and his compassion for the church is through the arm of the mercy ministry of the diaconate in churches. And so I want to encourage you, if you want to make our deacons here joyful in the execution of their duties, be willing to go to them to ask for the help that you need. I had a friend, uh, again, a pastor from another life, and he was accosted one Sunday morning after preaching by a woman in the church who came up to him and said, I can't believe you didn't come visit me in the hospital this week. And he leaned over and he said, Sister, I would have if I had known you were there. 
And how often do we sit in our homes miserable and grumpy because no one's coming to take care of us, and yet we're unwilling to pick up the phone or extend our own hand to ask for help? And if you want our deacons to be able to function properly for Jake and David and Glenn and our current diaconate to be able to serve you well, you need to be willing to ask them for help. It's one of the things that I think is the greatest threat in the church today is that so many people are so self-sufficient and independent, and then they badmouth or get grumpy against the church for not caring for them when they needed help. And so please be willing to come to our deacons and ask them for help. It, It is the work that they're called to. And they enjoy to do it. The second thing we see in Acts chapter 6 is that the deacons have a particular role to fill. I remember when I was standing here in this very spot just over a year ago being installed as the associate pastor here. And Bill Marsh stood here behind this lectern and gave the charge to the congregation. And um, it, was, it was quite fantastic, in fact. And he said, well, I don't worship here anymore, so I can say whatever I want to y'all. And uh, you're just going to have to deal with it, and I'm going to go home afterwards. And I remember him saying one of the most helpful phrases that, uh, and I, I bless all of you for taking note of this and, and doing it well. He said, don't ask Kyle to do things that he's not equipped or called to do. Likewise, the deacons exist so that way Neil and myself and, and the session here can be devoted to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so it's important to acknowledge what their particular role is, and that's the role of mercy, the oversight of the material possessions of the church, the physical property and the financial oversight of the church, as well as caring for you, the members, and your physical needs. And so recognizing their role, understanding that it's principally about mercy and care, gives you the opportunity to honor them according to their work, to pray for them to be able to do their work the way that it should be done. Do you know that these seven men on our diaconate and these three that are joining now love you dearly? I had the joy of spending all day with them yesterday from 8.30 in the morning to a little after 3 in the afternoon as we brainstormed the way forward for the diaconate at Christ Covenant Church to set a tone and trajectory for the next year. And throughout the day, repeatedly it came up how much they love you all and how desirous they are to care for you all and what compassion burns in their hearts when they look at you all and see you in your need. They love you and they serve in that capacity because Christ has given them that deep and abiding love for you. And so we see that the body has needs and the deacons are there to fill it. The deacons have a role and they've been equipped for it. In fact, if you notice here in verse uh, 3... The apostles say that from among these, the congregation, they're to pick out seven men who have two characteristics. They're of good repute and full of the spirit and wisdom. They're of good repute and full of the spirit of wi- and wisdom. Well, that's nothing other than the qualifications listed in 1 Timothy 3. They have a good reputation and high Christian character. But there's something else going on in Acts chapter 6, verse 3. We all know that Dr. Luke wrote Acts, right? And he also wrote the gospel that bears his name. And in Luke, he makes two particular statements about Jesus Christ that are really relevant right now. In Luke chapter 4, verse 1, he tells us that Jesus, full of the Spirit, was sent out into the wilderness for his temptation. And then in Luke chapter 11, as Jesus is telling the Pharisees how all of these ancient pagans are going to rise up in judgment against them because of their hard-heartedness, he says, the queen of the south came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and something greater than Solomon is here. In other words, according to Luke, Jesus Christ is full of the Spirit and of wisdom. 
and the qualifications for our deacons is Christ-likeness. How do you honor them? You honor them as the compassionate hand of Christ at this church. They have a role to fill, and that's to serve as Christ's compassionate arm here. It is no small office to be a deacon in a God-honoring, Bible-believing church. And lastly, look at verse 7 with me. It pleased the whole congregation. They called these seven men who were full of the spirit of wisdom. The apostles laid their hands on them and prayed for them. And then there's a gap between verse 6 and 7. Something happens between verse 6 and 7, and I'll clue you in on what it is. The deacons begin to serve. Or, as a friend of mine used to say, deacons deek. And that's what they started doing. They were serving the widows. They were caring for the body. They were managing the goods. No longer were people selling their goods and laying them at the apostles' feet, but at the deacons' feet. And they were ensuring the distribution happened to all that were in need so no one went without. And the resulting consequence of the church and the diaconate and the session functioning properly was that the word of God increased and the number of disciples grew greatly in Jerusalem and even many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Do you realize that when you honor and encourage and assist and love your deacons, Christ's covenant church will be a healthier place because of it. The functioning of the deacons, allowing the functioning of the elders to work properly in tandem with the life of the body as you minister to and serve one another through the deacons means that Christ's covenant church will grow spiritually, perhaps numerically, but ultimately that the word of God will increase in this place and disciples will become better disciples and more Christ-like. So my charge to you this evening uh, in conclusion of this uh, look at Acts chapter 6 is to ask you to pray for your deacons. Pray for them that they can do the work they've been called to do with joy in their hearts. Bring your needs to them. Don't sit back in your homes frustrated that nobody has, via clairvoyance, determined the needs that you have but rather express your needs and allow the body to minister to itself, to care for itself, to serve itself, to build one another up in the faith as the deacons uh, lead in that way here at the church. Aid them in the execution of their duties as they themselves have oversight. And I'll remind you briefly of the vow you took just moments ago as Pastor Stewart asked the congregation to stand and say, I do. You said that it was within your desire to honor to encourage and to assist and love these men as long as they're officers of this church. And we see that happening in Acts chapter 6. And we know that the result is a healthier church because of it. And so I charge you now, Christ Covenant Church, to honor our deacons, to assist our deacons, to encourage our deacons in their work, and to love them because their hearts overflow with love for each one of you. Amen. Well, let's stand as we sing our hymn of response in concluding our ordination and installation service today, taking our Trinity hymnals, hymn number 660, O God Beyond All Praising.